0: After what is surely the longest introduction in sermonic history, we have finished with Deuteronomy, and today we start Hebrews chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have some on the table there in the back. Uh, Of course, you can pull it up on your phone, but Hebrews is near the end of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, It's a sad thing. I think Jeff Collins is maybe working in the nursery, he and Beanie, this morning. And I don't know if they can hear me over the speaker or not. But I've been trying to needle Jeff into teaching Hebrews in Sunday school for the better part of a decade. And he has been throwing that challenge right back. And the reason is that Hebrews is notoriously one of the most difficult books to interpret in the entirety of the Christian canon. So we are going to do our very best, but it's going to require of you... Uh, uh, energy and concentration and focus on Sunday mornings, a little bit of dedication, of course, by the time that we arrive here on Sunday mornings, now at 11.05, I'm already familiar with the passage. I have done the lion's share of my work, and now it's time for you, as we understand that this is not a spectator sport, to participate in what it is that we're about to do, which is to understand more uh, rightly who our God is as he has revealed himself in his word. So I'm going to pray for you to that end, and then we're going to talk about this letter called Hebrews. Father, I pray that for myself and for everyone else here in the room, that you would help us to concentrate, that you would help us to focus, that you would help us to love this word, which, as Hebrews tells us, is living and active and able to take us down to our composite pieces. And then, in spite of Christ, to put us back together again. Father, I pray that you would allow us the privilege and the freedom to live in obedience to what we find here revealed about you in the letter to the Hebrews. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. To understand Hebrews, you have to picture two separate worlds, parallel to each other, and yet dramatically, drastically different. There's the home of God, the heavenly place, the realm of light, of holiness, of life. This is the place where God is. And obviously, this is a place where we are not. And then there's the earth, dark, weak, deadly, frail. This is a shadow land. This is where the children of Adam live. This is our home. And these two worlds are connected by the same story, the story of how the children of Adam and Eve might be reconciled to their maker, the maker who lives in this heavenly realm. Now the maker visits our world and he shows us what he's like and how we ought to live. He makes covenants with us and we saw one of those for the last year, the covenant he made with Moses, that the people, if they would obey, they would be blessed and if they disobeyed, they might be cursed. He shows us how to worship. He shows us how to build tabernacles and temples And who should stand between he and us? This is the priests. But this world is still dark. It's still broken. Living under the terms of a failing covenant, we cry out for something better, more hopeful, more permanent. And so God promises that one day he would enact a new covenant. Better, enduring, more real. In every way superior to the one given through Moses. And God makes this promise knowing that the only way that the new covenant can be brought to the people is if he himself takes on flesh and joins us in this world. That God might not only be fully God, but also fully man, and condescend to join us in the shadow land. And so he does in the person of Jesus fully God, fully man. Jesus is crucified and he's buried and he's resurrected and by these things he opens a portal between these two worlds so that we who live in the shadow land with all the vagaries that exist on this side of existence might be drawn into the presence of a holy God, may be taken from this kingdom of darkness and propelled into the kingdom of light. Jesus' atoning work At the cross, opens this door. It spans the chasm between the shadow land and the place of light. And this is Hebrews. This is a book about two worlds who share a lot in common, but are divided by a chasm that can only be spanned by Christ. And so this is a book about how those two worlds are brought together by Jesus's death and resurrection. And it's a book about how Jesus brings the people of faith into a new covenant, a lasting and enduring covenant, one that will never fail, one that will never end. In fact, Hebrews doesn't shy away from comparisons. It's uh, often we say in our house, and this is a great lesson for parents to teach children, It's a great lesson for life in general. You will be happier and healthier if you resist the temptation to compare where you are to where the person beside you is, right? Hebrews invites comparisons. Over and over and over again, it wants you to understand how the new covenant, the new mediator, the new temple, the new arrangement that God is setting out before the people is so dramatically better than what came before it. And so we find all of these comparisons. In fact, the title of our series is Better The superiority of Jesus Christ in Hebrews. It wants you to make these comparisons. It wants you to contrast what's being offered through Jesus versus what was being offered before. There are a vast number of contrasts in Hebrews. The old covenant was earthly, the new covenant is heavenly. The old covenant ministry was a copy and a shadow, the new covenant is real. The Old Covenant featured human priests who were destined to die. The New Covenant possesses a high priest who lives forever. A priest under the Old Covenant had to offer sacrifice for his own sins, but Jesus' sinlessness means that he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. And then chiefly, under the Old Covenant, multiple priests had to enter repeatedly into the sanctuary to offer numerous, endless sacrifices. Under the New Covenant... A single high priest, Jesus, enters the heavenly sanctuary once and through his death and resurrection offers a singular sacrifice once and for all time. It doesn't shy away from the comparisons. It begs you to reckon with them page after page, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. Now this isn't the way the author of Hebrews is telling you to understand that the law is bad or evil or that God didn't know what he was doing beforehand. In fact, he's employing an ancient Hebraism, a form of argument called uh, let me make sure, I wrote it down here so I could say it correctly for you, right? Kal Vahomer, right? It's arguing from the good to the better. Uh, Here the author of Hebrews isn't trashing the law. He's saying the law was really a wonderful thing. Moses was an incredible guy. The Aaronic priests were as good as you could find, and yet Jesus and the covenant that he offers is vastly superior. If you thought it was good before, well, you can't even imagine how good it's going to be now through him. So, let me introduce you to a few concepts here. You'll find these on your notes, and this is the kind of stuff we have to talk about the first week, the really exciting stuff. What's going on in Hebrews? Let me give you a big idea, not just for this week, but for all the weeks that follow. And we'll be here for the better part of the next I don't know, four, five, six months, something like that. The big idea of Hebrews is simply this. The uh, person and work of Jesus, specifically in achieving the new covenant, bringing us a better covenant than the one we had with Moses, are vastly superior to everything that's come before. What Jesus does is better. It's better than the old covenant. It's better than the retribution that came from obeying or disobeying the covenant given to Moses at Sinai. It's lasting. It's grounded in Jesus. It's better. He's obviously writing to a group of people who are intimately familiar with the Old Testament. We don't know exactly who the author of Hebrews is. There's half a dozen people it could be. It could be Paul. That's a real uh, possibility. It could be Apollos. It could be... Uh, Luke, I suppose. Some have argued that Priscilla is the author of Hebrews. I think all of the holy people who have really studied the Bible know that it's Barnabas, right? And so we know that if it is Barnabas, and probably is, then that he was really familiar with the Old Testament and that the people who were reading his letter were also really familiar with the Old Testament. Maybe that meant, I think this is a fair way to move forward, that these were people who were raised in Jewish homes who came to follow Christ. But there has been a lot of temptation to go back to what they knew before, to abandon Christ and to live the Jewish faith that they were originally brought up in. And so the argument of Hebrews makes a lot of sense if that's your target audience, because what Barnabas is saying here is, oh, you know how good the Mosaic Covenant was. You lived under it for." however many years of your life. But this new thing that we have in Jesus, it's better. It's so much better that you cannot possibly conceive of going back. So that's what we know about our author here. That's what we know about our recipients. Let me give you two key terms here. The first is greater, superior, better, something like that. It depends on the translation that you have. In fact, I uh, think that what we find here uh, most often used in the ESV is superior right same idea is being conveyed over and over and over again right Jesus is better his covenant is better his mediation is better his sacrifice is better better you're going to find that word used so often it's going to sound weird to you to say it out loud one more time I'm in my office going better 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 better, better, better. right it almost loses meaning you keep saying it that, that many times The other thing you're going to find here is uh, the phrase, uh, let us, let us. Uh, For all of you uh, Greek nerds in the room here, this is your hortatory subjunctive. Every time the author of Hebrews lays out this argument in vast detail about how much greater Jesus is than fill in the blank, and we're going to get to an awful lot of those answers. He then follows it up with these warning passages, these vast, hey, now in light of what you know here, you can't possibly go back. You can't abandon the faith. You can't, in fact, let us then do this. These encouragement passages, in light of the truth that we have learned here doctrinally and theologically, then let us live in such a way. There are these practical admonitions for the whole Christian community, to live out the truth that they have been taught. And the way that that's embraced is by using this phrase, let us, this hortatory subjunctive, all of us together doing this thing, living out this faith practically. You're going to find that used, I think, more than a dozen times in Hebrews, which is a really unusual thing. So let's do this. Let's go ahead and go to chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses. I'm going to read them out loud, and you can follow along there on your phone or in the Bible, whatever you have on you. And we're going to make some observations because what's happening here in the first four verses of Hebrews is the author is making it really clear from the get-go that Jesus is better. And we're going to see in what way specifically he mentions here, or she, I suppose, in the first few verses. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And some of you, I think, are rightly here picturing Moses. Of course, that's who we've been talking about for the longest time. But God, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And this is the introduction. This is the starting pistol that gives us the beginning here of this argument, Jesus is better. I'm going to boil uh, what we find here down to four things. I think there are four general arguments that he's making here in the first four verses about who this Jesus is. First, he argues that Jesus is the superior communicator. Jesus is the superior communicator. Again, there in verse 1, long ago at many times in many ways, he used to speak to us through prophets. And we know that that's true. He spoke to Moses in fire upon the mountain. He spoke to Elijah in this still small voice. But now in these last days, in this last epic, the final word of God, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the final, the definitive communication revealing the father to the people here on the earth. The book of Hebrews begins with the contrast. Here in the first verse, the first couple highlight the difference between how God used to communicate and how God has now communicated through Jesus. The author calls this epic the last days. Jesus is the superlative form of communication. As from the Father, he calls the world to repentance and faith. And Jesus relays the message of God's nature with Perfection. No, Uh, it's interesting here. Um, The word that is most often used for image in the New Testament, we find this word used a lot as icon. You may be familiar. We've kind of drugged that into modern usage. And it's used, I don't know, something like a dozen times throughout the New Testament. It's interesting. The author of Hebrews doesn't use the word icon. It's the word you would expect here, the exact imprint. Instead, he uses the word character, which, of course, we're also familiar with, at least a variation of in modern English. Character. It's used only here in the New Testament. It's a fascinating picture. Uh, In the ancient worlds, you would make coins out of soft metals. Maybe you use copper or silver or gold. And you would make an etching out of iron into uh, the shape of a face of a king or some deity, whatever it is that you wanted your coin to look like. You would etch it and scrape it out into that iron. And then you would put that iron over the raw piece of metal, this little blank round shaped thing, and it would be held there by the blacksmith. And then the other smithies would gather around with their hammers and they would beat down upon this small blank piece of metal, leaving an imprint and we would recognize that face then on the coin. Whatever was etched in the iron was impressed onto the coin. And this is the exact same terminology, the picture that's used here in the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is the exact imprint being beaten down, revealing to us precisely and finally who the Father is. This is how we understand who God is and what God wants. It's been revealed through Jesus. That's the term that's used there. Again, this is the story of two worlds colliding. How do we get from the shadow lands into the heavenly place? And it starts here with these words, and God spoke. That's how it starts. That's the first line of the first chapter of the book of reconciliation. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke. Jesus is the great communicator. Secondly, Jesus is the creator. Then verse three, he is the uh, verse two, in into verse two, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. the The words we might associate there are creator and sustainer. He made all of it. He's not just sent by God as some lackey. He's the one who made both of these worlds. He's the one who sustains both of these worlds. It's by the word of His power that second by second, it's upheld. not some dead thing like Atlas carrying the world on his shoulders, right? This new, living, vital, fiery thing, rising in life, being managed by a sovereign creator. This is Jesus' work there. And again, it, it helps us ask the question. Can Jesus get us across the gap? Does he have the power? Does he have the authority? And the answer from Barnabas here is very clear. Of course he can. He not only can help you get from world to world, he's the one who made these worlds. Here's the proof. He has the power. He has the authority. In addition to having the volition to bring these things about. Thirdly, Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the redeemer take a look again at verse 3 and he upholds the universe by the word of his power and after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs he has become the heir of all things because of his death and resurrection Um, interesting fact about Hebrews as we turn back and forth you might expect us to go back to Deuteronomy or Genesis or one of the great theological tomes of the Old Testament but in fact the book that the author of Hebrews quotes more often than any other is Psalms and it's interesting why he quotes Psalms I think we think of Psalms as kind of a song book it's a nice way to start your day a lot of people go to Psalms and their devotional lives, right? I can get in, most of them are short, they're pithy, they're not super deep, and, you know, I can kind of exchange there, and it's, all right, it's, it's Psalms. We're familiar there. But the way that the author of Hebrews quotes Psalms is that he quotes it as an intensely theological book. He is drawing a lot of messianic theology out of the book of Psalms, and he does so starting here from Psalms chapter 2. So go ahead and turn back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, we find this phrase used repeatedly that he has inherited all things. Where does that come from? Uh, is the author of Hebrews originating that himself? Well, no, he's actually playing on a very old promise made written down, I would assume, by David now a thousand years before Christ ever set foot on the earth. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and all the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens, he laughs and the Lord holds all of them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, of course, the king that the Lord had set up a 1,000 B.C. was David. But there are all these promises that linked David with one who would come from his line, a king who would rule on David's throne forever and ever, who would rule in perfect peace and righteousness. So when we find here in verse 6 this promise of the king who would rule from David's throne. It's not just a reference to David historically. It's a promise about a Messiah who would come, Jesus who would rule, one of David's descendants on that same throne. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He was on to talk about the authority and power of this king who would come. The exact same language being used in Revelation 18 and 19 when Jesus comes back. So this promise here in Hebrews chapter 1 that there is one who is coming who will inherit all of the nations. This is the way that the author of Hebrews is telling you that the person that David promised a thousand years ago that the Lord said he would invest with his power and authority. He's come. It's Jesus. He's there right now. And not only has he inherited all these things by his death and resurrection, his greatest achievement is emphasized, the extent of which is we have been atoned by his work after making purification for sins. And now we're starting to get into the kind of sacrificial priestly temple language that's pervasive throughout this book we're going to see this over and over again temple language sacrifice language covenant language and when the work is finally done he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high That phrase comes back again in Hebrews chapter 10. Because the work is done, he's able to sit down, unlike the priests in the old covenant who had to stand daily, offering one sacrifice after another. Jesus offers one sacrifice and gets to sit down. Now, uh, there's additional implications here, and you don't have to turn there. I'll turn there for you. But back in Psalms, right, our author's favorite theological source book, we find prophecies like this one. So this comes from uh, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. Now, we know God the Father does not have a literal throne room. He doesn't have a literal seat. We are not speaking of him literally at his right hand. We know God the Father does not have a corporeal body. He is spirit. So this is figurative language that the author is borrowing here. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Exact same language used in Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 10. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, referencing here. Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9, and Hebrews chapter 10. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment. He will drink from the brook, by the way, therefore lift up his head. This is kingly language here. The language of sitting is the language of a king who has come to rule that which has been given to him. In fact, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 44 picks up on this exact same theme. He talks about what happens in the heavenly places. And he makes an observation that as he talks about priests, they're always standing, doing the work that they've been called to do. But the king, the king is allowed to sit. So in Ezekiel uh, 44, verse 1, then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut, it is not to be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince, the royal one, may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. Only the royal one, who is worthy to enter into the presence of the Father, and to sit at the king's table, can sit and eat with Father. Every single time we find in the Old Testament this sitting language, it's royal language. Now, uh, some of you I know are absolutely bored to death, but this is fascinating because here's what's happening here. In the New Testament, when we talk about who Christ is, what Christ's role is, there are three things that are talked about over and over and over, three specific roles, prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. And here's what the author of Hebrews has done for us already. What does the prophet do? He communicates the message of God. And we've just been told that no one in all of history has communicated God better than Jesus. He is the great prophet. What does the priest do? He mediates a better covenant by offering sacrifices. And we've just been told that Jesus is the one who offers the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is the great high priest. What have we been told about kings? that because of their royal authority, they're allowed to sit in the presence of God, the Holy Most High. And we're told that Jesus is the one who, because of his work at the cross, is allowed to sit at the right hand of the Father. He is the great king. So already here in the first few verses of Hebrews, we have alluded for us, Jesus is the greatest high priest, the greatest prophet who has ever lived, and the king that was promised to David a thousand years before. He pulls no punches. It's an intensely theological book who points us over and over and over again to how all the pieces fit together to give us one singular identifiable picture of Jesus. Jesus is the best. And if you were concerned that as you make all these comparisons about Jesus, that we're only talking about Jesus as compared to other people, right? Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Elijah or Noah or Abraham. The author right out the gate wants you to know that Jesus is the highest, not only of all the earthly beings, but of all the created order, period. He is the creator. So if the highest thing that you can envisage, the most glorious, bright, burning, fiery, scary thing that you can conjure up is an angel. He cuts that off right at the knees. Jesus is even higher than the angels. He is having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs already two contrasts again he is better he is superior he is more excellent there is nothing that exists that is higher than him he not only is above them he made them this is the argument that he offers there it's the first of many many instances of better you can get used to it Uh, Again, the imagery that's drawn here is from Psalm 89. If you want to get really into uh, understanding the book of Hebrews, I would encourage you to read Hebrews in the morning and Psalms in the evening, because that's how we're going to make all of this work. Psalm 89, verses 6 and 7. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around. This is the imagery he's drawing on. All of the superlatives of the Old Testament now being fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. So what? (laughs) We're going to ask that question an awful lot in our study of Hebrews. Hebrews can be so heady, so dense, so theological, we don't want to miss the opportunities to apply what we learn there to everyday life. And the first one is this. If you're asking the question, can I know who God is? Can I really know? Has he really revealed himself? Will he make himself known to me? If I am searching, can he actually be found? And if you're not there personally, I guarantee you know someone who is asking that question. They have questions about the faith. They have questions about the Bible. They have questions about the reliability of what it is that we're doing here. And foundationally, I think the question is this. Can we really know that there is a God and what he's like and what he wants from us? And from the first few verses of Hebrew, the answer is yes. Yes, you can, and here's why because he didn't just send a prophet and he didn't just send an angel and he didn't just write it on a scroll. God crossed the gap between where he was and where we are and he did it in the most personal way possible by taking on flesh himself. He is both the messenger and the means of how we get reconciled to him. He did it. He did it himself. This is why William Barclay can say that the basic idea of this whole letter is that Jesus Christ alone brings men to the full revelation of God, that he alone enables men to enter into the very presence of God. No one does it better. God stopped at nothing. Nothing to let you know that he can be known. Here is who I am. Here is what I want. And here is how I've made all of this possible through the work of my son, Jesus. Father, we know that all of this is only possible because of what Jesus was willing to do when he came. that it's through this atoning work through this purification for sins through this sacrifice that we're able to be reconciled to you in the heavenly places I pray that we would be reminded of the cost all along the way that when we're reminded that Jesus is the better priest and the better king and the better prophet that we'll be remembered too that he is the better sacrifice that he's the means. In Jesus' name, amen.